Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. My guest today has spent a great deal of her professional life interacting with people of the Islamic faith. Events in this world, especially since 9-11, have thrust Muslims into the limelight, for better or for worse. Many perceive them as the enemy. Others, like Judith Dietrich Whitehouse, perceive them as simply friends. I've asked Judy to join us today to talk about Muslims and how we as Americans and as Christians should perceive them. Judy, Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become so interconnected with the Muslim world? Well, the bottom line, Charles, is it was a God thing. Hmm. The experiences he led us through were by his initiative. Both my husband and I were birthed and educated in Adventism. And so when we finished university, in fact, before we finished education, we were newlyweds, we were age 23, we were invited by the, the World Church to work with Benghazi Adventist Hospital. My husband was to pastor the large group of missionaries there that were from multiple countries. Mm. We had to go to the Encyclopedia and the World Globe to learn about <laughs> Libya ourselves. Where is this place? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We had been raised very parochially on the west coast of the United States. So we were supposed to go to Libya. Mm-hmm. And we learned that Libya was ruled by King Idris al-Sanusi, He was an elderly, benevolent ruler, both a civil and spiritual leader for his people. Some years before, he had given permission to Neil Wilson, who at that time was president of Nile Union Adventist Mission, to have a hospital in Benghazi with only one condition. That was that we should not proselytize. Midway through that first mission term, my husband found us a home some distance from the hospital, out of Benghazi a ways. It was among simple, grassroot, warm-hearted Libyans. For those who don't have an encyclopedia nearby, where is Libya and this Nile Union you're talking about? Where is that located? Nile Union at that time was based in Cairo, Mm -hmm. and it covered several of the North African countries. So Neil Wilson was president of the Union there in Cairo. He had gone to Tobruk, which was where the palace of King Idris was, and asked for permission to have a Seventh-day Adventist hospital in his country. Of course, we all still know that Libya is pretty much 100% Muslim, and Neil Wilson had the godliness and foresight as he approached King Idris' throne to recite the opening surah of the Quran, which is a beautiful, worshipful prayer that could be on any of our tongues any day of the week. And that so impressed King Idris that he indeed lengthened the assigned appointment time and talked to him at length, and eventually concluded the conversation, saying, yes, you can have your hospital, and you indeed are a child of God. Mm, I like that. So we are talking about Northern Africa here. We're talking We're about talking Libya. We're talking Northern Africa. Uh-huh. Northern, uh, Libya, of course, is just to the west of Egypt, on the Mediterranean. Yes, okay. Now, you say that you, you were educated uh, by, by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and 
did they not do an adequate job of telling you what you were going to find over there? Or did they not even try? Or what were some of the issues that came to light immediately that you were not prepared for as you made the journey from this country of plenty to that country of want? Certainly. uh, We had much to learn. We were still wet behind the ears. (laughs) We had never been exposed to Muslims, to Islam, to the whole apparatus and worldwide situation of Islam. And indeed, Gerald's visa, and this seems so laughable, was to be a Christian pastor in Libya. (laughs) Needless to say, it took many, many months for that visa to be processed. And our learning had only barely begun when we landed there. Libya had been a colony of Italy, Hmm. and Italy had long gone. Our housing was in absolutely Italian villas. They they were far exceeded anything that we had ever lived in in the States. (laughs) And we were out to learn, and boy, we had a lot to learn, I'll assure you. When you go into a place like that, uh, just in case there may be some listening who are, or might be traveling to a Muslim country, what is the attitude that they should have? What are the attitude that you finally came up with, you and your husband, that allowed you to live and interact there so peaceably in, in that country that was so different from the one you came from? That's a huge question. Obviously, we were very strange. The only thing we could see of a Libyan woman was her left eye if she wasn't in her home. We did not understand so many things, particularly about the spirituality of a Muslim family. We found the Libyans very cordial, and any initiative that we made to make relationships was richly rewarded. In addition, we had a wonderful missionary group that basically we felt like we did not experience uh, culture shock because we were so inundated with all of these fellow missionaries with whom we shared a mission. The situation of the condition of our having a hospital to not proselyte. That's pretty tough for a a group of of Christians. Yeah, my husband had just graduated from Walla Walla College with all of his ministerial (laughs) credentials, but what was the applicability to this people group? Would we pull out, you know, American Bible studies and all of this? So as I say, our learning curve was huge. And at the same time, we were very welcomed. We were just very blessed. I I really couldn't wish a missionary any softer landing. Hmm. Hmm. And of course, that is that is something that a lot of people don't quite fathom because. I have to say, Judy, they think of Muslims as flying airplanes into buildings. They think of Muslims as, as, as shooting people and beheading people. You saw a different side. And I, from the very beginning, I want to make something clear here. What were you looking at? What kind of Muslims? Was it a different kind of Muslim? Was it a different kind of belief system in Libya than is out there now? What on earth did you see that the rest of us seem to be seeing such a different vision? Well, I will say that this is a lot of years ago. Charlie, I'm an old lady. <laughs> and I don't think that the world was nearly so polarized in those days as it is now. The hospital, which was indeed the Seventh-day Adventist Benghazi Hospital, was unfortunately called the American Hospital because we had very many American professionals there. And so we were interfacing not merely as Seventh-day Adventists, but as Americans in a 
country that at that time was not basically anti-American, except some of its neighbors were very fiercely anti-American, and the propaganda certainly did infiltrate into Libya eventually. But the people on the streets, the, the grassroots, the people next door, these individuals tended to be more open and friendly and warm to you, am I right? Well, I would back up to say that's probably true of humanity across the globe, and I often think of the life of Jesus. On Sunday, people were saying, crown him, son of David, etc., and by Friday, they were shouting, crucify him. That's true, that's true. So the mentality of the masses is extremely fickle. I will say I did not ever have a negative interaction with a Libyan. However, this business of not proselytizing Perhaps we took too far, and we were so distanced socially from the Libyans. In fact, midterm, through our first term there, my husband, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, went out the city some distance from the hospital and found us a home among these grassroots Libyans. It was they that formed my opinion of Muslims, gracious to all distant places. And, you know, just people that you found it very easy to love. Although, of course, our lifestyle and our religion and even my dress was very different than theirs, but they were warm-hearted, genuine neighbors. Mm -hmm. So did they accept the fact that you were different, or did they tolerate the fact that you were different? Did they try to change you in any way? You were in their country. You were eating their food. You were traveling on their roads. Did they try to change you in any way from what you were to what they are? I had no perspective whatsoever that they tried to do that. I think that our very foreignness out in this basically Bedouin area certainly raised suspicions of some people, although I do not believe that was true of our neighbors. I had one friend especially, Fatima was her name. She would bring me home-baked bread. If you can imagine, this bread had been baked on a half of a 55-gallon barrel that someone had plastered and cemented the inside. Then she would build a fire in the middle of that, and the cement would become hot, and she would plaster this flatbread against the edges of this very sooty, sooty half of a barrel, and that would be the fresh bread she would bring me. She came often, and I will admit, sadly, my Arabic skills were very insufficient. <laughs> but nonetheless, the language of the Brotherhood of Humanity says a whole lot. Because, you know, we have Muslims coming into our country, and what do we want them to do? We want them to change and become just like us. I was just wondering if that was happening when you went to their country. I did not sense that. I believe I was respected um, as a person from a different culture, but not inferior, not to be hated. I was accepted as a human being by those neighbors. Mm. Well, there's and I was also, in some ways, because of our connection with the hospital, seen as a someone to help their people. Yes, of course. I, I have a brief story. One afternoon, I was alone, and I, I had a very small baby, like 14 months old at the time, and someone knocked on my door and said, my brother's wife has delivered a baby, and it's too small. And I said, you know, he must have spoken English, and I said, I don't have any way to help you right now, but the minute my husband gets home in a couple hours, I will send him, and he can take you to the hospital. Then before he had been gone just a little while, he came back with his mother and with this newborn wrapped in her voluminous garb. 
it was definitely too small. It was a very preemie baby. And again, I, and incidentally, she brought me two eggs, which I think was supposed to mean something about fertility. I was very <laughs> pregnant at the time. And um, I said again, I don't have wheels. I don't have a telephone. I can't do anything until my husband comes. So indeed, when my husband came, they hurried the baby to the hospital, who was cared for for some time in our hospital in an incubator. And daily, the father would go with my husband to the hospital to see his newborn. And one morning, they arrived at the hospital, and unexpectedly, the baby had sickened and died in the night. So our vehicle, our little red Volkswagen bug, was the hearse that carried that baby to the cemetery and, of course, to the mosque prior to the cemetery. So we we were rubbing at this level with other human beings who had their joys and their sorrows. We're talking with Judy Dietrich Whitehouse. She is very knowledgeable about uh, the Muslim faith and the Islamic faith, I should say, and the Muslim people who believe in the Islamic faith. She has lived among them, and she has worked among them, and she's sharing some of her experiences. Because I think the reason that I want you to be on this show, Judy, is so that we as Americans will understand the humanity behind all the headlines. That's what I'm looking for here. I want to, I want to make sure that we understand that, that the Muslim brothers and sisters, these are people, they have sorrows, they have joys, they are very much like us, and we need to learn how to accept them and live with them. Now, let's move on uh, in, in your story. You lived in, in Libya for a while. Where else did you live in that area, and what other experiences may you share with us today? Well, first of all, I'd like to remain in Libya a bit. Yes. Uh, while we were there, the government was changed. There was a coup that, that uh, deposed King Idris, and the new government, the military government, took over. With that change of government, the hospital was nationalized. And that was a really tragic jump start to our interest in the peoples of the Middle East. With huge tears, we told those sweet neighbors goodbye. And we were the final paid church employees leaving there after 13 long years of sacrificial medical work. This was 1970 that we actually okay. left Libya. We were impelled to focus on just how the outcome might have been different. How might the gospel of Jesus have worn Libyan clothes and been made more relevant to our neighbors, to my friend Fatima and other neighbors? We moved to Lebanon at that time for three years. We lived in a glorious mountain village of Lebanon where we learned Arabic. Mine remains quite limited, and mine was from my neighbors in their kitchen. <laughs> and then later we worked both in Sudan and Bangladesh, each place having a huge Muslim-Christian demographic. Now, Share a story of your latest interaction. I, I talked to you earlier this month about this, and this story is very exciting, and I, I want to share that with our listeners. And tell us what you learned along the way. I'm a postpartum obstetric nurse at Loma Linda University. In November, I had a lovely patient. She was quite frustrating to my colleague nurses because she was non-English speaking. She was Jordanian and Arabic speaker. It reminded me hugely of the birth of our three daughters in the Arab world without the benefit of grandmas and aunties and cousins and all those sorts of things. 
And, of course, I knew less Arabic than she knew English. After she left the hospital, we maintained contact, and when they were planning to purchase tickets to take their children back to Jordan, Emirates Airline demanded that there be an adult per infant, and I therefore became their guest. I witnessed exuberant joy as these three little tiny, tiny people met their grandparents and their large extended family in Jordan. They accepted me as a guest, and they kept reminding me I was their sister. And I just found them to be devout and God-fearing people. You know, you have to realize in this climate we have today that in a lot of these countries, for a lot of these people, America is the enemy. But you did not feel that at all. I so definitely did not. I will say that the reverse was a bit true with my fellow nurses saying, you don't mean you're going to stay in the home of that family, do you? And I really saw nothing that was frightening or any reason I shouldn't. So I was with these people and heard their stories, saw their lives, met the extended family, and being with these three beautiful babies and the joy of this family reminded me very much of Jesus' words, there is joy in the presence of God and the angels when one child comes. It was, it was very moving. After I left their home, I stayed with them a couple of days, I was able to visit another family, another Jordanian family that we had known here in Loma Linda. This family are the family of a man who studied to be a doctor of physical therapy here and now teaches at Heshemite University in Amman. During their stay here, uh, in fact, he had studied one year and then gone back to the Middle East to bring his family, and his wife and children had just arrived when 9-11 happened. Someone called my husband's office and said, are you aware that right next to your office, which is in right downtown Loma Linda, there's a family, the wife is hysterically anxious to get on a plane back to her country for safety. She fears the Americans. So I went and we became friends, and through the remainder of their five years here, uh, we interacted. We were sometimes in their home to break the fast after Ramadan, and certainly they were in our home. And when they finished here, we were invited to the large gathering, predominantly their Muslim friends uh, that celebrated his graduation. I really must admire these people. They've told me about some of their past history. These are Palestinians that, of course, had to change their family's location and cannot go back to the areas on West Bank where they grew up. But the, the peace and godliness exuded by these people, I believe, is of God himself. Now, you mentioned that your fellow nurses uh, were just, you know, beside themselves, could not believe that you would want to interact with these people and stay in their houses. What are some of the major distortions that most people uh, have of Muslims? And In other words, what is it that is separating us mentally and emotionally from people who we have shown and you have just told us are very much like us? Well, perhaps the biggest thing in my estimation is fear. Fear does terrible numbers on human beings, and it's the devil's tool, in my opinion. Our media and so much about us tells us we should fear the Muslims. We not only fear them, but we misunderstand them and often even hate them. And within that hatred is a huge amount of prejudice that I think, you know, sometimes people need a common enemy. And it will change from from era to era. Yes. And I 
perhaps that's the Muslims right now because of misunderstanding. And in my opinion, as a believer in cosmic conflict theology, I believe that's the work of the devil. We often stereotype Muslims as either women oppressors or godless or terrorists. Not many years ago, there was a major Gallup poll worldwide, and it went over several years, that found that 7% of Muslims are fundamentalists and would fall into the block of potential terrorists. To categorize all Muslims as terrorists, in my opinion, is to say that all Christians are like Adolf Hitler or Timothy McVeigh. Interesting. Interesting. Or to say that it's the Christianity that's at fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we do the same when we reverse the charges. Well, Judy, there are those who fear Islamic influence in the world. Are some of these fears grounded? Now, the 7% you mentioned are fundamentalists. Uh, these 7% are those who are, are, uh, are eager to make sure that the Muslim society continues and thrives. Is it enough to cause us to fear? I mean, should we be afraid of the Islamic influence in the world? I mean, we're talking about a minority of people here, 7%, but is this a minority that can do us damage? Well, I agree there is some Islamic influence that definitely is to be feared. However, a second question might be, what should we in the West, or as Christianity, do, even if all of that threat was realistic? Interesting, yes. To say that the use of military superiority is to be used, I think that only worsens the situation. It increases the fear, their fear of us, and then reversely our fear of them. Mm -hmm. We may definitely fear Islamic influence, but I think we should also fear religious fanaticism in our own country. Interesting. And in my opinion, religious intolerance in any setting is dangerous and lethal. This is interesting because you have two ideologies, Christian and Islamic, facing each other, and both of these religions, if you dig down just a little under the surface, we're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to be kind and loving to each other. And here we are, are facing each other. What is wrong with them and what is wrong with us? What has caused this to be the way it is? My personal opinion is that we should look first at ourselves. Hmm. <laughs> Recently, we were in a Sabbath school class, and Someone suggested that the prayer in that Sabbath school class should include the Iraqi people. This was when the war was going strongly there. And the person that was accepting the prayer requests said, oh, yeah, I guess we've got to live our enemies. And if we, as followers of Jesus, consider any human being our enemy and outside the pale of God's grace, we need to think again. Muslims, in my opinion, are part of the brotherhood of humanity, and they were created in the image of God just as much as we. And furthermore, we share a common father of faith. There were promises to Abraham for both of his progeny. They are to be recipients of our help as much as anyone. And in my opinion, they deserve a congenial witness to the gospel. And to deny them such a witness is to say that we're really not God's children ourselves. Mm. Mm. And of course, I mean, if we look historically, and certainly what the media says and the polarization of our world today, Satan has distanced people from each other. 
in fact, from the Muslim's perspective, Christianity is distinctly inferior. Perhaps better than we, they can see the sinkholes in our culture and in our countries. And, you know, we say, well, but we import everything to the world. Everybody needs America. We also import Hollywood. And although they may be tantalized by them, they disrespect the West and therefore Christianity as the source of those. So our starting point with Muslims certainly is very different than our perhaps American neighbor next door. Do you make it clear, should we make it clear in our interaction with Muslims that Hollywood does not necessarily represent us as America and certainly not us as Christians? Have you had opportunity to say just that? It's fine to define ourselves that way. However, our actions so often speak so loudly they can't hear what we're saying. You know, words are words, but behavior is what is watched. And believe you me, we are watched. Living in Loma Linda, it is a huge international community. And believe you me, we Adventists are very watched. My Afghani friend regularly tells me, so-and-so is an Adventist. He's a good Adventist, or something to the contrary. Yes, yes. So our actions really need to be the telling part of our, of our witness. Our actions should be more powerful and more obvious than our words. Is that, is that what I hear you saying? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I myself, although I claim God is my Lord, I may not have the option to change Hollywood and to, you know, make liquor unavailable in my country and so forth. So all I have to do in my, in my little spot on the planet is to live my life and relate to people, as, relate to my Muslim friends as children of God. I cannot single-handedly defend either Christendom's history or things that go on in my Western country. And we must always realize that the West in the Muslim world is seen as Christianity. Well, you have opened our eyes today, Judy, to to some realities here that a lot of people may be missing. And I know from knowing you that you care a great deal about the people you're talking about, the people with whom you live and work. I wish that everyone, I wish I could take everyone that I know and just put them in a small house near a Bedouin village in Libya or in Lebanon or in Jordan and just let them live there for six months or so and get to know the people there. I think it'll change some attitudes. Have you found that to be true? I would think that would be very true. Yeah, all right. Now, our guest today has been Judith Dietrich Whitehouse. She is a, uh, let me get this right, you are a postpartum obstetric nurse at Loma Linda University Medical Center in California. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And she's also, she and her husband have traveled and lived in Muslim countries in the past And I enjoy talking with her on this topic because we as Americans, we need to just sort of look beyond ourselves. We need to look beyond our little tight-knit groups and our Facebook pages, and we need to just open our eyes a little bit to the reality of the people living in this world and understand that, no, we don't need a common enemy. We do need common friends, and they're out there waiting for us, just waiting for us to give them the opportunity to be the friends that they want and that they need and that we need as well. Judy, thank you very much for being with us today. I appreciate it. 
so welcome. And listener, I would invite you to visit www.libertymagazine.org. Lots of good articles there. And also this program and other programs in the series can be heard right there as podcasts on the website. That's libertymagazine.org. Until next time, this is Charles Mills and Judith Dietrich Whitehouse inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to LifeQuest Liberty. To further explore the issues discussed on today's program, visit www.libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of religious freedom burning in your heart today.